you are listening to another edition of The Franchise Guys, the podcast that takes a loving look at some of the most impactful franchises in genre entertainment. Tonight we are discussing Alien 3, and uh, our last film was Predator 2 quite some time ago, but uh, nothing has changed in the world uh, since then, has it, Mike? Uh, Ridley Scott is still alive, which is a big plus. Uh, uh so, so is, so is Danny Glover. Uh, Fincher, Fincher is still alive. It's yeah. a plus. Yep. We, we, we joked about, uh, this type of thing when we did Predator 2 anticipating a long layoff, but, uh. Sigourney Weaver, very healthy. Oh, there was a presidential election though. Yeah. That, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That too. But, uh, you know, here we are talking about Alien 3. Yes, and uh, to uh, if you're new to the show, and to recap that, uh, I'm John Evans, and I'm joined by Michael T. Kuchak. We have no Vikram Wheat. Uh, Vic is dealing with selling horror scripts and raising rugrats and things of that nature. It's uh, it's a shame that he can't be here, but uh, we will forge on without him and discuss yeah, so- Alien 3. I realize that a lot of our audience are comprised of Vicomaniacs, and uh, <laughs> feel free to just turn us right the fuck off right now. He's just <laughs> he's busy. He's not here. Sorry. <laughs> There's a uh, 100% less Vikram wheat in this podcast, but uh, <laughs> we we do have plenty of shaven head Ellen Ripley. Yes. Uh, so let's get into that. As uh, everyone probably knows, uh, this is a Another 20th Century Fox joint, 1992. Um, we're about six years after the last one, and a lot of a cavalcade of screenwriters came through the studio with various takes for Alien 3. The studio was committed to doing something radically different, and they they landed on that. Uh, say what you want about Alien 3, but uh, the basic idea here is we're going to go completely away from the militaristic technological roller coaster ride of the second film of course directed by James Cameron and with this newcomer this music video director making his directorial debut on the feature film level David Fincher they embarked on something very very different now that uh, that basic premise is of course that we have this planet of these monks uh, they're monks, they're prisoners, they're miners of some kind, they're some, some kind of industrial uh, colony that has been mostly abandoned. There's a, only a skeleton crew of Weyland yutani authorized caretakers uh, left on this planet, and they are former prisoners for the most part. Uh, that you know used to work here uh, in that capacity, and as they've gotten religion and uh, they're atoning for their sins, they've decided to remain all men. Uh, by the way, uh, to remain behind and operate this, uh, or you know, maintain the machines or whatever the hell they're doing for some future uh, use by the company. And uh, into this world drops. Ellen Ripley, uh, because her escape pod lands on the planet. Uh, it's been jettisoned from the Sulaco due to some string of events that's rendered in the opening sequence. It's pretty sketchy as to exactly what happened or why. Uh, Mike, let's start there. Do you have any theory as to exactly what this 
accident was um well let's reel back a little bit uh sure. yeah traditionally we do uh how did you come into this film the first time you saw it you know kind of a, oh yeah you know, you know i'm a little uh, i'm a little out of practice it's been a while i was waiting for that cue that's why i wasn't saying anything. <laughs> yeah so mike what was your first experience with alien 3 uh, for me it was like phantom menace it was exactly like Phantom Menace, uh, where I ran, ran, ran right down the steps in my footy PJs on Christmas morning, ran out to the theater, so excited, so crazy excited. Back then, it was when I would still do stuff like get mad at a movie for, yeah, <laughs> like I, like I literally stalked out of that theater and I saw the movie. With my then girlfriend and uh, the guy was playing guitar in my band at the time, and uh, and I, I, both of them were like, I don't know, it's fine. And they had no idea. I was I, I was fuming, furious. I was so furious with this film. And what happened was I ignored its existence for a very long period of time. Someone finally gave me. I got a boxed set trilogy of the you know back when it was only three films. Uh, of the alien films for a Christmas present. I watched the fuck out of the first two and I just ignored the third one until finally one day I was like, and we were talking about like years after the film came out. One day I was bored. I'm like, you know, bucket, I'm just going to watch three again. And I didn't hate it. It's not nearly in the same area code as the first two films but neither is it like this, you know, complete failure of cinema, you know, despite the problems that it had in production and whatnot, you know. So, and I, I left it alone since then. I, I've watched this film maybe once in a the theater, once the time that I just mentioned, maybe once or twice since then. And then I watched the extended edition today. Uh, and it, it's it's okay. It's a violently okay shrug of film uh, that has occasional you know, fun stuff or interesting ideas or like a cool visual. Uh, but yeah, I was mostly bored to be honest. Yeah. I watched it last night and, um, you know, I normally go to bed about 1130 midnight, something like that. And by like quarter after 11, I'm, I'm having a hard time staying awake and it's those endless, uh, circling point of view shots from the alien's perspective as the he chases these anonymous shaven-headed prisoners through these uh, drab tunnels and you know they're slamming airlocks and everything and it's it's not a poorly constructed series of sequences but it it just it, it to me that's always kind of what I think of when I remember this movie and my own emotional reaction to it, you know, was intense at the time, of course. But, you know, as the years have gone on, this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've seen it. Now that's what I think of is this somewhat monotonous uh, quality that that portion of the film has. And really, the movie overall is just sort of I could describe it as anti-entertainment. I mean, I don't know if we've talked about this. (laughs) There are some movies, Mike, that to my eye, they strive to more than anything say, fuck you to the audience. And it's not necessarily that they hate the audience, but they're just really, really concerned with subverting whatever your expectations are for a scene or for the overall experience and challenging 
the audience. And it's not, it's, I guess, like, on the spectrum, there's pandering to the audience or being extraordinarily emotionally manipulative and contrived and trying to, you know, wring a certain specific emotional response out of the audience. This is the total other side of the spectrum. You really see it with art films and, and foreign films more than Hollywood uh, fair, but like kind of a, a concerted effort to vex and frustrate the audience. And I really it, feel that's what this movie was doing. There's almost a weird eye roll that the movie does whenever it does something entertaining like oh okay fine i guess we'll kill somebody in a surprising manner because that's what you plebeians want for your 10 bucks you know (laughs) yes yeah there's a pretentiousness to it there is a way to bring art and a high level of just cinematic craft to a genre film and make it play. And uh, I would offer the first two alien movies (laughs) as the perfect examples thereof. Whereas this one felt like uh, all parties concerned were doing everything in their power to crush this into uh, a drab British drama. Uh, It's like Billy Madison, not, not Billy Madison with the, with the dancing kid. Do you remember that? Where, Where like the, God, what is it? The <laughs> dancing, the dancing kid. What's the dancing kid? The, the dancing Irish kid. But da- uh, Billy. Oh, Elliot. Billy Elliot. Yes. Yeah. Where it's like this you know, soul crushing British drama of the film where they're locked out of the coal mine and they're burning mother's piano for heat in the Christmas season. And everyone's sad and there's cops beating up people. This is very I, British. I will add this is very yeah. British. I agree with you. <laughs> God, yeah, it's like watching dudes run around a coal mine for for two hours. Yeah, the attitude of Vincent Ward, the screenwriter, and by extension, most likely David Fincher, seems to be that the original two films were these soulless Hollywood blockbusters. The empty escapist fare for the masses, and we're gonna make a we're gonna make a serious movie here. We're gonna really yeah, it's art crap. We were done making crass popcorn for the yeah. dumping slop into the trough for the pigs to squeal at. We're gonna give you art whether you like it or not. <laughs> Take your medicine. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've I've often th- you know, I in every film, not every film, but it's always nice when a movie is about something when it's trying to say something to the audience. I and cinema is still art, no matter what, whether you're making Friday the 13th part five or an Oscar winner or what have you. But I think that's, uh, it always works best when I'm talking about, you know, your thematic element, your artistic thesis is when you treat it like a, you're, you're feeding a pill to a dog, like a dog needs the pill and needs the medicine that you're trying to feed it to. And there's two ways to give the pill to the dog. The first way is to wrestle it down and put a tube down its throat and put the pill into the tube and blow on the tube and it goes right in its stomach, right? And the dog will, even if it's your dog, the dog will fight you tooth and nail the entire time. It's not happy about this because it sucks. And the other way to feed the pill to the dog is to roll it into a piece of bologna. And then the dog sits up and goes, yeah, awesome. Yeah, give me it. And that's how you deliver your, th- your artistic thesis 
to the audience. Like they didn't drop 10 bucks to be reminded that life sucks a lot of the time (laughs) that you're dirty, (laughs) dirty, awful. It's like, it's funny because the characters in this film do nothing but complain about how awful life is and they're not wrong. And we get to hang out with them for two hours until they get murdered by uh, a xenomorph and nobody cares. (laughs) It's like, like, life sucks and then you die. Part three. Well, there is, uh, you know, on the positive side, both, you know, thematically and of something I like about the film uh, so that we tell the listeners that, you know, it's not all just bagging on this this film as being an entirely miserable experience. And I know there's things you like about it as well. I'll, I'll just shift gears to say that uh, first, the, the relationship between Charles Dance, this character, uh, who I didn't I couldn't believe how young he looked, by the way. Um, he and Sigourney Weaver have a much more uh, I wouldn't say it's uplifting, but it's a charming aspect of this film. And, and there's not even without its issues. Clemens is the character uh, that Charles yep. Dance plays. It's not without its issues either, but like there's there's a real wit and grace to, to their interactions that were a welcome interruption from the dourness of, of the film. But then the other thing is thematically, these guys do sort of, by making this sacrifice by participating in in this noble crusade that Ripley invites them to participate in, they actually do find a degree of redemption in their deaths or a meaning in their deaths that no amount of long, miserable years on this planet would have uh, left them with. You know, like they, a lot of them, especially as this, you know, reaches, gets closer to its conclusion, uh, they die with a, a sense of fulfillment and purpose that they never otherwise would have would have felt. And yeah, I, I like that. I frequently feel that in many cases, the antagonist is the protagonist's best friend. Uh, and in this case, the alien gives these guys a, a means toward a heroic death that otherwise they would not have had available. So, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I mean, it is funny, uh, even with Charles Dance, years before he was Tywin Lannister and a variety of vampires, there's a drawing room wit to him. Uh, it's very Downton Abbey, mm-hmm. you know, uh, very, very wry, very uh, subtle. Uh, there's a class to the character that he brings, which I, I did enjoy. And I liked their interaction, although I was amused by the fact that he asks her about the, you know, what caused the ship to crash. He's, he's basically trying to figure out what's going on. And she dodges him by by fucking him. And it's funny that she just brings up, she's like, are you attracted to me? It's like, uh, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then we like, uh, but it, what made me laugh was the fact that we immediately cut to They've already chastely put their clothes back on kind of per this entire movie. Even when we're given the opportunity to have like a steamy sex scene, the movie says no. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. <laughs> no. In fact, you're going to watch her wear drab gray things and shave her head. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's there's no uh, immortal panty shot in this one. That's for sure. So, we don't like fun here in film school. 
Yeah, yeah, this penal colony is uh is for atoning even as an audience. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> you have to yeah. atone for all the the pleasure that aliens gave you. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I did do uh ordinarily for these things I do little or no research and this time around I wanted to google around a little bit because it is a famously troubled shoot. I read a couple of interviews with Fincher in which he made clear that he came on after uh, another director had been, had, you know, I forgot, Vincent Ward was that his name? Yeah. Well, that was uh, the, the writer. So maybe he was going to both write and direct. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's precisely what happened. And I even remember uh, I used to read a magazine called, I think it was Cinescape. I used to buy it from Blockbuster. Oh, yeah. I used to buy Cinescape from Blockbuster uh, when I was running horror movies. I'm like, oh boy, new Cinescape. And I distinctly remember reading in Cinescape an uh, article that was about Alien 3. And uh, they were talking about the, this crazy new direction. Like the guy was going to have it set in a, a giant wooden cube. It was, was going to be a ship made out of wood and there were going to be space monks. And you can see the echoes of those of those ideas in this movie. And I mean, at the time, it was like it was so different from what I was expecting out of an Alien Three movie. But I was like, uh, okay, I mean, the last two were great. Why not? Why not? But I realized, John, that I hated, 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 hated this movie the first time I saw it, simply because it wasn't anything to do with the movie that I already had in my head. The first movie had one alien crew of like maybe seven or eight people. Second movie. We have a uh, hundred and some odd aliens and an alien queen versus a, you know, a, a marine squad, and so by logic, the third one should be millions of aliens attack Earth or something along those lines. Uh, when it went, when it took a step back, that we even get like a smaller alien, and it's like two dozen guys, but they don't even have any like weapons at all. They have nothing. I, I want to charitably say this is kind of the Day of the Dead of the original <laughs> trilogy. Because even Day, I, I remember distinctly feeling that same sense of disappointment. You know, the first one is, you know, a few people in a farmhouse. Second is, you know, in this big shopping mall and we see hundreds of zombies. Obviously, Day of the Dead is going to be, you know, oh, my God, we're going to see, you know, cities being attacked and rampaged. And I, I thought it was going to be World War Z. And instead I got... Oh, it's like the couple of hippie guys and a couple of army guys, and they're sitting in the basement. Oh, okay. (laughs) The reason I hated this movie walking out of the theater, I think it's partially due to the things that you're talking about, but it was more emotional and visceral for me. I mean, I think that really they lost me in that opening sequence that I alluded to. Like, just the very notion that you would, as fans of this film, both of the previous films, but especially of Aliens, you ascribe this value to the relationship between Ripley, Newt, and Hicks, and Bishop for that matter, and the next like bunch of filmmakers who aren't the same people, it's like a rental car, you know, you're just watching them take possession of the rental car and piss all over the interior. (laughs) (laughs) We need to get through the mud. Yeah, like you. I guess in this tortured analogy, you used to love this. Uh, this was your car, and you sold it, and then you got to find out what happened to it when it became a rental car because you right. couldn't you couldn't afford it anymore. And now you get to see what people did to it and how they drive your baby. Uh, I think that was kind of it, it. Just was so horrible to see Newt and Hicks dispatched 
and not only that they're dispatched, because I think I've always been a, a person that appreciates dark, intense, uh, ch- you know, challenging, very uh, unpleasant and, you know, m- sometimes even heartbreaking forms of entertainment. I love tragedy. Yeah, dude. I love tragedy. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 between the two of us, I'm way more popcorn than you are. Mm hmm. I, I you're, you're you're way more film school about this kind of stuff. You yeah, know, uh, so I was open to it. But I think what, what really what what made me angry is that they get so little mileage out of that. I mean, yeah. like if she sheds a, a tear for Hicks at all, I missed it. I mean, we see her, you know, there's a little bit of emotion or or, or whatever at this overall news and of course you know there's a beat or two with newton and the uh the autopsy scene which is which is rough but like you don't she doesn't really process it i mean it's so quick between that autopsy scene and her propositioning uh this doctor clemens that you know like it seems like for all intents and purposes she's over it very quickly and yeah I was looking for that beat, and she, she she cries when they go back to the the escape pod. Mm-hmm. But even then, it's like kind of you know she's holding it together. She's being brave about. It. I know exactly. What you're talking I don't about. even know like what I wanted, and I I can't even tell you like oh well if they only had like this beat, um, I would feel that they paid proper tribute to Newt as a character. But it it just it felt like. She was just baggage from the last movie that we we can milk for a little bit of horror, I suppose, even though, again, I don't even think this film is that interested in horror. What exactly is this film interested in and in giving us? That's a good question. Misery. <laughs> what is but, it? <laughs> well, I, I dovetailing on that thought, I was able to come back to the movie and eventually come to enjoy it. You know, I give it like a five. You know, it, it's not. It, it's okay. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it's okay. You know, the first time I saw it, I was furious, and then years later, I was like, eh, all right, it's fine. And then today, when I watch it, uh, I did my best to completely divorce myself. From the other films, because I kept asking myself, you know, why do I hate it so much the first time? Why do I think it's okay now? And again, the reason is that I had a film in my head. I had expectations built on the first two films, and this movie didn't give me any of that. So, what and did you like? I watched it, asking myself if if I just sat down with this movie and had nothing to do with anything, uh, would I enjoy this beat? Would I like this? Would I be okay with this? Da, 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 da. And, uh, you know, so stuff like when she has the autopsy with Newt, on the one hand, completely goes with this kind of overarching idea that the movie is doing everything in its power to stomp on your popcorn. But on the other hand, I'm like, damn, this is rough. This is kind of interesting. This is a tough choice. And I also came to realize that there may have been a logical method to the madness of doing that. Because when this movie came out, everyone lost their minds that they just kind of dispatched these two major characters from part two, like off screen in this offhanded way. But we have seen in all three in the first two alien movies, Ellen Ripley is always uh, alone. Even when she has a crew, there's tension with the crew. It, It always has to boil down to her versus the alien. And if she showed up to the movie three, 
with this ready-made tough marine and small child, this family unit, then it would change the dynamic of what an alien movie has been for the past two movies. Now we could easily say that if Fox really wanted to lower the boom and completely change up the dynamic of an, what an alien movie should deliver, then they should have kept those characters around. And so you know, are artificially throwing them over their shoulders just to replicate, you know, the aloneness of Ellen Ripley. But ironic that the bold decision is also the most, I guess you could say, crassly purposeful twist to to restore it to the same, as you said, the same order that we had in the previous two films. That's a really good point. I think to have those two characters around would have made this a more different alien movie than again throwing Ripley in with a bunch of people who distrust her and she has to show them that she's actually a leader. I mean, like under the skin, this movie is actually in in that way identical to the first two. Yeah, it's just in some ways it's kind of clicking through the motions. And uh, I, I actually laughed out loud a little bit in act three when there is like a short sequence in which Ripley has to go through this industrial situation and a female computer voice is yelling at her while the strobe lights go off. And I could just hear the creative team or the executives sitting around and going, we need that beat. We, you know, it's not an alien movie unless, you know, Ellen Ripley is, you know, running through a industrial space with uh, alarms going off at the end. Yeah, so it's it's conventional in in some ways that are pretty unwelcome, even while it's subverting so many other expectations in equally unwelcome ways. One thing that I really like is though that this is where we begin, and this this continues in the next movie. This really horrible thing to do to Ripley. I mean, when you think about, well, what can we do to Ripley? How do we make it even worse? And obviously killing Newt is is pretty bad. But having her turn into an alien is is in some ways kind of the the worst thing you can do to her. And that's kind of where we go by making her a clone and a hybrid and all that in the, in Resurrection. But in this film, by implanting her with the... The, the queen's embryo or the embryo that would grow up to be a queen. Uh, we kind of make her unwillingly part of the family as she puts it. And she, she gets benefits from that, but there's also like the, the sickening horror that knowing, you know, that her, that this is going to happen to her just the way it's happened to Ash and uh, not Ash and, you know, to Kane and to other characters, uh, throughout so many people that she's, uh, but also I just think that what, what's more interesting even than than that she's going to have a chestburster come out of her is is just the notion of they that this alien won't attack her because she is kind of like one of them now and and that's that's like the last thing this human being would ever ever want is to you know she was sort of. Uh, in a way, parallel to the, the alien mother in the last movie, you know, where there are two mothers. Well, now she's been dragged even closer to that alien mother uh, and that now she is the mother of an alien mother. <laughs> uh, I did notice that uh, Sigourney Weaver was a co-producer on this film. Mm-hmm. You know, they probably flipped her the credit to sweeten the deal to get her on board for another one. But at the same time. You know, she obviously was in a place to have creative input. None of these choices for the character 
are dumped in her lap and left for the actor to figure out what to do. Like she's going into everything that the movie does to the character eyes open. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I think she know. too is as an actor looking for, uh, you know, how can this be interesting? Like what, what can I play that will not be the same stuff over again? And I give her credit for that. And I, I also want to just say that I think her performance in this you know, notwithstanding some twists and turns that I don't love and dialogue and things like that. I think she's great mm-hmm. in it. Uh, I think yeah. she really brings it. And it's a it's a different it's it's Ripley, like it's recognizably Ripley. But this is a more broken and damaged Ripley, which is partially, again, part of why it's horrible emotionally. I mean, to see this woman that this character who's become a, an icon uh, of, of feminism and of, you know, heroism in general to, to begin like eroding this character down to nothing, which is ultimately where we leave her at the end of the next movie. She's she's, you know, part alien and very much an inhuman thing. And so far from the the wonderful humanity of of where she started. It, it's it's somewhat awful at the same time as it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. For all the realism of the first Alien movie, it's still, you know, she smokes, she hangs out in her panties. You know, it's still fun. You know, she still seems fun. You know, uh, if, well, if she I, has yeah. a sense of humor. I mean, she always has a sense of humor. She's dropping yeah. one liners in Resurrection, too. Whether you're they're good one liners or not is a different different thing. But but yeah, just the sort of. The fact that this, I guess horror movies generally do this if a character sticks around for more than one movie, you know, you you basically destroy that character because no one's sanity and joie de vivre could <laughs> hold up. <laughs> what we have is in this movie, the our, our protagonist has been completely ground down to the point that she's in a prison and all of the human characters are broken, sad people who only want to die. <laughs> yeah. And that's our movie. <laughs> Have fun <laughs> at the theater, kids. <laughs> we'll be back to pick you up in two hours. <laughs> Alien 3, everybody. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, per the one liners, in Alien 2, or Aliens, as it's sometimes called, <laughs> there, there's a beat in the boardroom. Where they're disbelieving her story when she's telling them about the first movie, what happened in the first movie, Lola. She goes, uh, you know, did IQs just suddenly drop while I was away? And it's a fun, sharp line that she lays on characters who thoroughly deserve it. You know, they kind of have it coming. And so you're on her side and you're like, yeah, you tell them, blah, blah, blah. And in this movie, later on when they're trying to figure out how to beat the alien, she's walking along with 85. And uh, she's like, so what do we have? And he's like, we don't have weapons, nothing works, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, can you make fire? You know, <laughs> fire has been something that's been capable by human beings since the Stone Age. And it's a very sharp line, but the guy com- like completely just doesn't deserve her fucking tongue right there. Yeah, he's just kind of a dumb dude who's just Well, yeah, it. 85, if anyone's forgotten, is his IQ. That's why they call yeah. him that. Yeah. But I, I, he's just kind of a dumb guy who's just kind of telling her the news. You know, I mean, you ask a question, I'm answering it. Nothing works. We don't have anything. And she just fucking lays into the guy like that. And it's like, I know we need a couple of laugh lines in this movie, but it's like, you know, let's, let's lay them in a place where we don't kind of roll our eyes at the protagonist when she puts it out there, you know? Yeah, one of the other things... 
you know, talking about the company as represented in this film that is interesting to me is that in the last movie, Burke was the basically the only person to believe her and his as a company person, his reaction to that was we have to monetize this. And in this movie, the idea is that everyone now believes her and they want to monetize this. And so like the entire it wasn't so much that Burke was was the outlier of of evil in some way. It was that he just was like the first person to, um, <laughs> you know, not be so dumb and close minded as to uh, believe that she was full of shit. And as soon as the company kind of uh, gets on board with that, I mean, I guess you see it in the first film that the company is, you know, more or less on the same page as, as Burke would end up being. It's a running thought that the company is, is totally willing to fuck over the people in the field in exchange for something that it feels could monetize. And she actually has a good, you know, little speech about that here where she says she basically runs down like the people in the other movies and, you know, how little the company cared about them and then says, you know, so what do you think they're going to do with you to, to the right. prisoners? You know, like, right. You think they're going to come here and save your asses, you bunch of murderers and rapists? And yeah, because they're very logically against doing anything besides just hanging around and waiting for the company to show up. In one or two of the interviews I read with Fincher, you know, he mentioned that uh, the script is very cobbled together, like they were actually shooting scenes purely because they had built the set for it and didn't want to waste the money. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and uh, he only had five weeks of development between when he first signed on and when they started shooting. And I, you know, there, there was stuff that they were shooting like uh, a week before the release date. And you can see that in this film, there is like, like, like Cameron's film is a Swiss watch. You know, it's a when we were talking about that film, you know, we kind of circled the idea, which is very true, that it's in many ways a perfect movie. There are no holes in that submarine. It's a really fantastic screenplay. Alien 3 feels way more like a spec script that got pulled in, that got developed, development held to death and still kind of sort of hangs together. Thanks to the fact that Fincher is a very talented guy. And we have a talented crew of people around, but there's a lot more cracks and leaks in the storytelling. None of them are massive, but there's just enough of the smaller ones that it feels like a ram, you know, ramshackle shaggy dog of a narrative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it has a, a, a certainty to it or a swagger and assuredness that kind of carries it. But if you look at it too long, it, it really... See, you know, you realize how haphazard it is. I mean, one of the things that I, I was struck by is how many times they keep repeating the idea of we just have to wait for the rescue team to come. Yes. And, you know, like we've probably talked about on this show many times, the maximum of screenwriting, you know, don't repeat anything. And they just say that like. I don't know, six or 10 times in this movie because they're they're just trying to tread water and, you know, explain why characters, you know, are, are doing what they're doing or gin up conflict. Like there's some really bad dialogue where they're just trying to have some conflict in the back of. So the scene isn't dull like they when they originally have, um, you know, when uh, Andrews is is saying that they 
that this woman Ripley has, you know, been found here and they're going to have to wait for someone to come get her. There's like all this sort of indistinct chatter in the background where you're like, logically, what are they saying? No, I, we should kill her. You know, right. like, what are they protesting? Like she's right. here. Nobody's coming. Like what, what is there to debate here? I, yeah. I, I, I just, just, uh, you know, in, in the treatment, it says, uh, the prisoners are horrified by the idea of a woman in their midst. And on the screenplay page, it probably says something like the prisoners are in an uproar, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I mean, that's, that's the uproar. They just want that beat. Whether it's like what were they actually saying, and you know, and, and Charles Dutton is fantastic in this movie. Oh, yeah. He's probably one of the the standout elements of this film. But even then, his character uh, is frequently repetitious because they they use him as as kind of a sledgehammer. And uh, in the scene that you're talking about, you know, he immediately was like, the brothers do not want to be disturbed. And it's like, you know, it's like yeah. she crashed fresh land on the planet. I'm sorry that we rustled your your church jimmies. You know, it's like, what the fuck should we do? <laughs> it's like, yeah, we, we it's good land. ideas. Yeah, she crashed land on the planet. We call someone to pick her up. She's going to hang out here for a week. Fucking, you know, God's not going to smite you down and we don't need a big speech. I, you know? I, like, I love the idea that there are no women on this planet. And when you think about, like, injecting this woman into the situation, what it would bring up for these prisoners and the fact that his job, his, you know, his belief in their spiritual salvation and protecting that is to keep them on the straight and narrow. Like this is a major challenge for him that, that she's here. And I totally get that. I like that. I understand why he's so standoffish with her because of that, what that means. And also the idea that like he does, he doesn't want her to trust him or anyone else because they are bad people. Like, so, uh, you know, he has to sort of feel out whether or not she's capable of, uh, handling herself in this situation. And of course she is, but like, I don't, I don't think that that conflict is really is trumped up. Like it's a, it's an interesting conflict and he's a great character. And I think that if Vic was on the show with us, he would have brought him up a half an hour ago because I know he loves um, Charles S. Dutton. And, and this Dylan character is, is an interesting character for sure. That scene where he confronts her in the mess hall, you know, the prisoners are just kind of hanging around and hubbubbing, and she comes in. Interestingly enough, this is the second time we've seen uh, Ellen Ripley in a mess hall in a, you know, un- uncomfortable scenario. It's even a you similar know. room. It looks yes. similar. <laughs> yes. And uh, she goes to communicate with him, and, he, and I love the beat where he's like, you don't want to know me, lady. I am a murderer and a rapist of women. You know, and it just lays it out. It's like, we are bad guys. You got to leave us alone. And uh, on the one hand, this is a woman who has uh, seen her entire crew munched by one xenomorph, has faced down an alien queen in the midst of a exploding, you know, mining facility. I mean, she's been through some shit, you know, but at the same time, you know, that doesn't put a, you know, that doesn't mean in real life that you have a million hit points. You know, there you're still in a room with like two dozen fucking murdering dudes. <laughs> oh like, yeah, I mean when yeah. she's uh, almost raped, uh, you you definitely don't get the feeling uh, that was going to go well if he didn't, uh, if Dylan didn't intervene. Yeah, and it's like I, I they have to pay off the danger of the prisoners because they can't 
keep bumping up the idea that the, the these are dangerous guys and then not pay that off in some way. As a sidebar, I kind of despise the the sexual assault that gets uh, interrupted at the last second by our heroic character as a way to show that they're heroic. And we see this weirdly enough in superhero movies, but uh, I, it's, it's just a beat that always kind of not, not only does it feel off the shelf, but at the same time, I just kind of hate it anyways from day one. But it's like, uh. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a long list of complete cheap shortcut cliches that involve the threat of rape. And uh, yeah, it's a very uh, cheap device that, the film also has a problem in the sense that it spends half of half to two thirds of its running time doing everything in its power to convince us of how awful these dudes are. Like they're, you know, they're, they're, they're psychopaths that are just barely hanging on because they've got this crazy religion as evidenced by Dutton's character. But then at the end of it, we should be rooting for them. And now they're, you know, kooky, crazy, you know, they're just a full Monty, you know, of, of deep space sci-fi. You know, it's like, <laughs> Yeah, it's like they're right, right. Last, we're gonna yeah, like they're, they're just the the scrappy underdogs. They're gonna wipe the grease off their faces and take on all odds. I was just gonna, picturing these guys like dancing to a yeah, Gloria Gaynor to, song or something. Yeah, I, I, I mean, to the extent that like I looked up the Full Monty's release date, uh, 1997. By the way, you know, so I have to only assume that this movie had a deep influence on the Full Monty. <laughs> You know who we needed in this movie was the guy in the full Monty who also played King Baratheon at the start of Game of Thrones and uh, uh, dies in first season. Yeah, spoiler. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> spoiler, a character <laughs> dies in Game of Thrones. Sometimes. No way! <laughs> oh, so, wow. uh, yeah, it is, but but the, the movie doesn't affect that shifting tone effectively no. uh it does it doesn't pull it off it, it's like well, yeah i mean it's a it's a big challenge to say okay here's why you should hate and fear all these guys and then you know like by a half an hour later you're supposed to be rooting for them and giving a crap when they get killed and yeah I, I, they they want to die it's like we're just watching the only just <laughs> go for it yeah yeah go it, them. it's it's that's part of, again, one of the big criticisms that I don't think I'm alone in, in voicing is that compared to these other films where so many of these characters, I mean, we still remember their their names, for God's sake. Um, yeah. You don't. Wyspowski. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the minorest of characters. <laughs> um, and in this movie, you know, like it's just they are so interchangeable and anonymous for the most part. One guy I think we should mention that, uh, that kind of made me laugh was Brian Glover as Harold Andrews, the prison warden. I think of that guy as the American werewolf in London um, bloke at the pub who's like, and it's still too heavy. Yeah, 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 the yeah, joke yeah. About the <laughs> the guys on the the UN and uh, diplomats on the plane, and it even reminded me of American Werewolf in London in that there's the cop, not played by Brian Glover, in American Werewolf in London, the inspector and his dumb partner. Well, the relationship between Andrews and uh, Aaron or 85, his assistant, is very similar in some ways to the American Werewolf in London relationship of those two cops. One guy is sort of comically dumb and repeating everything that the smart guy says. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not giving this movie credit for that because I, it, it feels like a kind of a corny uh, device. 
it, 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 it is off the shelf. Yeah. But I, I, it's effective because it gives us like even some just some slight humor, you know, a wisp of amusement. <laughs> you know? Which is precious and fleeting in the desert of this film. Yeah, I, I, I kept thinking of Gilliam when I was watching this movie, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Brazil in particular. Yeah, and I, a line that would summon an arched eyebrow yeah. every once in a while was the extent of humor that we get out of this. Yeah, and I like that line where uh, Sigourney says to Dutton after his remark that you just quoted, where he says that you know I'm a rapist, I'm a murderer, I'm a murderer, I'm a rapist of women, and she goes, "Well, uh, I must make you kind of nervous, then, huh?" Yeah, it's a badass line, but at the same time, it's like, look, look, lady, <laughs> lady, <laughs> these guys could murder you. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, the other thing that bugged me about this film, in uh, talking again for the first of these three movies, she doesn't seem to be thinking as well as she does. I, I, yeah, that's what makes her the protagonist of the first two films. Is she's always thinking. And in this one, she's much more of a slave to what the screenplay wants her to do. Very specifically, I'm talking about her relationship with the alien itself. She's there. One of the cooler scenes in this movie is she's hanging around with Clement and um, and the crazy guy who they have wrapped in a straitjacket, Golik. Yes, I think his name is okay. Yes. So they're in, they're in the med bay. They're just kind of hanging around, and it's a very chill scene. And the alien pops up on over, and uh, it's behind a shower, you know, like a partition curtain, plastic curtain-y kind of a thing. Grabs Clemens and makes off with him through the ceiling, and a gout of blood falls off. And that's pretty cool. Uh, again, it's per the sensibility of this film that you would introduce a romantic interest and have him murdered halfway through. Of course it's like, like, they've had sex and they're developing a wonderful relationship, but, and he's dead. Yeah. Like when you're, when you're sitting there watching this movie for the first time and you're like, well, I don't like this movie, but that Clemens guy, he's pretty cool. And then they kill him and you're like, fuck this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like the the movie is like, Oh, we've identified something. The audience may enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's remove it let's, let's stop on with it and i don't get me wrong i'm i'm always I, I i like interesting choices i like tough choices but at this it's so consistent in this film that i'm just like motherfucker Easter. <laughs> but the point that i'm circling around to is if this movie has given us anything it's that image of uh ripley is up against the wall and the alien puts its snout right up against her face and the little the little mini me mouth pops up and it goes and that was actually the teaser trailer I remember and you know I lost my mind when I saw that I'm like oh my god that's awesome uh, and to this day like you can find like memes on the internet mentioning this otherwise forgotten film but the alien does not murder her it runs away in the first two movies Ripley would immediately go okay why did that happen and in this movie she does not She's getting progressively sicker until finally she goes back to the uh, the escape pod to get a medical checkup. And even that whole time, she's hanging around at 85 and she's telling them what to do. She's like, you know, look for hemorrhaging, look for hairline fractures. She's still thinking that it's like a normal injury from the crash. When everyone in the audience is like, no, dude, there's only one reason that the alien would not murder you. 
Like it murders everybody else it encounters. Yeah, she's telling yeah. him like, look for this or that because that would be indication of blah blah blah. And he's like, uh, no, but or something else. Yeah, and, and it's not her whistling through the graveyard. Like she's actually surprised when he lays that on her. Oh, it's, it's the line's almost comical. He's like, oh, I think there's one of these things in you. She's like, what? <laughs> Although I, I will give her Sigourney Weaver. I mean, uh, that beat in which she's like, okay, freeze it. I have to see for myself. And she closes her eyes for a second to kind of steal herself. And then just kind of suddenly looks at the screen. Yeah, I like that. Right. And then and then in Act 3, she tells Charles S. Dutton, uh, it will not kill me. Like, it, it confronted me in the med bay thing, and it had all the chance to kill me, and it didn't. And I've got one of these, I've got one in me, and I'm part of the family now, and la, la. But then the other characters are talking, and then they turn around, and they're like, where, where did Ripley go? Where did she go? And we see her creeping around in the basement of the facility, and she's looking for the alien. And uh, she gives us that cool line, you know, you've been in my life so long, I can't remember time. Voila. And she attacks it with a pull and tries to get it to kill her. And it won't. But this is information that she's established twice now, visually and by dialogue. It's not going to kill her. So I, I guess her thought was if she poked the bear with a pull hard enough, that would kill her. <laughs> I, it, it just feels – what? Huh? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of um, she just wants to die, and like she wants uh, Charles S. Dutton to kill her, and he reneges on that. And but uh, I, I, I mean, in that specific scenario, it's like no, the I beats, know the beats don't line up. You yeah, know, she knows that won't kill her. She goes looking for her, and when it won't kill her, she's like, "Well, oh, I guess it won't kill me." And it's like, "What you? No, you knew that." <laughs> it's like why. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but they even the idea that she just wants to die in that fashion at that time is 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 lame. You know, that's yeah. not really that's not her. Um, like I could see once it's all done and it's all taken care of. Uh, but, you know, and, and there's the idea in Aliens that, you know, will you take care of it if it comes to that? And Hicks is like, yeah, and vice versa but i think it i mean at this point we're incapable of committing suicide for ourselves is that is is that something that she's really wrestling with she needs somebody else like just to kill her and 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 for that to that point the logic doesn't add up with the alien life cycle in that this uh thing that it comes out of i don't know with the dog because i watched the longer cut but the oxen that gives birth to the alien in this movie is clearly dead. So, yes. like, how do we know that, like, it's an instant abortion for this thing if if she dies? Like, I don't have any reason to believe that. There's a lot of, like, all of these things that you're bringing up and, and, and things like that riddle this film where if you stop and think about something, it, it, it actually doesn't hold up to much, much scrutiny. And it, it's kind of nonsensical or doesn't have the impact that they, they seem to be taking for granted that it will. Yeah. Uh, I, I realized several times that uh, the soundtrack and slow motion were working really hard to let me know that I should be sad, I, 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 sad in some beat or relieved in another beat. You know, uh, when you have to use just nothing but filmmaking craft to, you know, explain to the audience how they should be feeling 
then then you failed in that beat. Absolutely. Um, and even the idea that like if they if they prevent the company from getting this particular alien, like does anyone who's watched any of these movies and seen like the giant hangers filled with eggs that are out there like does anyone really did they sell the idea that this is it for the alien problem if we just hold the line here yeah 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 it doesn't feel really that consequential if the company is all hot and bothered to get some alien eggs that this is their only chance Uh, no not not at all i mean the very fact that like doubling all the way back that however this egg got onto the onto the ship i mean the friggin queen had no egg laying capacity when we last saw her because she sheared it off. Yeah, so. I, I, I think we noticed in in the second movie though that these things are like roaches; they just kind of get into shit. You know, it, it's like yeah. uh, I just you know. want to say the bugs in this movie are very cool. Like the fact that there are roaches everywhere, I really like. Yeah, yeah, I really like the when they pick her up off the thing and she's like covered with what were they lice or yeah. like baby crabs? Like I, I thought that was a nice touch. Uh, speaking of Willie Nutani, like they're so excited. Like they have a dude wrapped in plastic and they have snow troopers and they've got Lance Henriksen. Like they've rolled out the red carpet to talk Ellen Ripley into coming back onto the ship with them so they can get this biological weapon. They're so, so, so excited. The whole time I'm like, why are these guys here? Why do they want this dumb monster that badly? You know, they've got guns, you know, it's like you know, they've got mm-hmm. missiles, they have nuclear weapons. And well, that's I, the other thing I brought up last time, I believe, like, well, who's the enemy in this yeah. war? You well, know? That, 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 that's that's what I'm bringing up, John. Uh, I think that what this movie with, with the with the trilogy is missing and this movie in particular is missing is uh, I remember an escape from New York that they needed to get that tape back. To play for the Russians yes. and to avert World War Three, it feels like we need that. Like we're getting our asses handed to us by these people, and we're so desperate for it. It's like you know, it's fun to kind of you know just kind of hit the oh they're, they're cynical, they just want money. Blah, blah, blah. It's like OCP and Robocop. You know, they're blah, blah. they'll just grind you up for an extra buck. Evil corporation. Yeah, 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 but uh, but they're they really go completely out of their way. So it's like there's no, they give us nothing in terms of like what where are they going to use it for? Who are they going to sell it to? And why are they so fucking excited about you know a, a monster? You know, it's basically as tough as about like a tiger. <laughs> it's like yeah, know? I mean, like the idea is that you would dump these things on your enemy, and yeah. it would be better than, I guess, the neutron bomb that they don't have, which would kill everyone but not destroy the infrastructure. But the aliens destroy infrastructure, so I'm even trying to find out like why it would be better than any other weapon. Like, yeah, to, they, to they use need, yeah, they need their backs against the wall by a third party. Yeah. And we, the Russians in this case, right. and uh, we, we have no sense of that. It's like, yeah, well, bioweapons division wants it. It's like, yeah, okay. You know. By the way, the Alien 3 video game when I was a kid, I enjoyed very much. I Dude, had a lot of fun playing that. That game fucking rocked. Yeah. Uh, rocked. It was, you're, you're right. It was an excellent, excellent, excellent video game. Uh, Super Nintendo, right? I believe so. Yeah. yeah, dude, I, I, I'm pretty sure I owned it, but I definitely remember playing the fuck out of it. Very entertaining. 
Very yeah. cool. Yeah. 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 I mean, infinitely more pleasure was had playing that game than watching the film. Way more jumps because it was a hard game. Yeah. It's tough. Uh, huh, 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 yeah, and yet you know, pretty uh, pretty accessible at the same time. You know, it, it was a basic platformer. Um, so doubling back, I, I think we would be remiss not to talk about the Xenomorph in its particular Alien Three incarnation. I'll say that the CGI is brutal in this film. Uh, mm-hmm. The early 1992 style CGI obviously does not hold up. I mean, you can't expect it to. Um, and they rely on it like unnecessarily. Like a lot of times they're just like, Hey, look, we can show it running around. And you're like, please don't. Every time the CGI alien showed up, I wondered why I was looking at it. Uh, it It's way more, you know, the thing that this movie does that I, I actually really enjoy is the way it pulls people into a ceiling and then like a shower of blood comes down. Yeah. I thought that was pretty fucking cool. And, you know, that's, you know, going back to the the Jaws example, you know, showing the carnage is way more effective than showing a cheesy CGI monster. And I think that it's hearkening from a, um, a period in studio filmmaking when they would lean over backwards to throw in the CGI stuff because I think they felt like it, it added production value. Yeah. For instance, uh, if you've ever seen Event Horizon – is filled with terrible CGI and none of it is needed. <laughs> like every time you're looking at, at something created in video, in video toaster floating on the screen here, it's like, why, why do I have to see this? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it's, it's not helpful in this film whatsoever. Uh, but I, I agree that I like the kills. I don't, none of them really are super memorable, but they, they, they keep one thing from the first one that I, that I love, which is you hear a lot of the, the shrieks of these victims as horrible things happen to them off camera. And you, you do get again, that reminder of somewhat of a slow, cruel, agonizing death. Uh, but at the same time, like it, it kills uh, it kills Clemens in that same way that I think we saw once or twice in the last movie, which is it just shoots that prehensile mini mouth inside of its uh, mouth out like a like almost like a, a thing that you would at a slaughterhouse use the air gun to like kill cattle, yeah. you know, yeah. where yeah. it just goes boom and like uh, takes a chunk out of someone's head. Yeah, it screws uh, his skull and drags him in the ceiling. Yeah, 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 and 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 that that like is one of its primary kills in this movie, which seems like really sudden and abrupt and quick and and more or less painless. So then there, but there's still we never really get it remains nebulous. What is this other slower kill that happens to, um, you know, Veronica Cartwright in the first movie? And right. and several characters in this film, and you kind of see indications of it ripping open your jugular and things like that. But I, I do kind of like that the the mystique of that remains. Well, there there is one beat near the end when they're doing the whole thing where they're trying to use themselves as bait and lead it into the the lead pory thing. Um, when one guy is like, you know, hey, generic bald guy generic ball guy and like he comes around the corner and like uh like around the corner you have like a flickering light coming off of his 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 drop torch and you can see the silhouette of the alien uh ripping this guy apart this movie is most effective on the horror level 
when we just have the screams of people echoing through these endless tunnels. There's a lot of beats that I really enjoyed in this movie in which characters are like, you know, you know, uh, Williams, Gibson, Gorshin, you know, they're yelling each other's names and they have no fucking idea where everybody is. There's no trackers. There's no telephone. You know, they're, they're, these tunnels are endless and someone could be getting killed anywhere. And it's just echoing through the, throughout the entire thing. I, I thought was creepy and cool. And I actually really enjoyed, you know, alien chase shots. I, I agree that they're overused. It feels like, oh, boy, we've got a new toy. Uh, but I'm like, OK, I haven't seen that in an alien, in an alien movie before. I think that's pretty cool. I, I liked it when um, we, we get those chase shots and we're watching the characters upside down because aliens running along the ceiling. They're, they're small pleasures, but they're pleasures nonetheless. Yeah, those things are not terrible. By the way, I, I found on Wikipedia to indicate how little research I did before this show. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> but I know. I, I usually would have this take ready, but I will simply read off of um, Wikipedia something that really addresses one of the questions that we've been talking about. So uh, Brandywine Productions, again, came back for this one, which is basically Walter Hill and Gordon Carroll and they and David Geiler. Uh, so they're OGs on this franchise. Mm-hmm. And they wanted their idea here was to explore the duplicity of the Whalen yutani Corporation and why they were so intent in using the aliens as biological weapons. Funny. That was yeah. the take. Various concepts were discussed and it, eventually they, they settled on a two part story. With, with a, a the third film, you know, there's going to be a three and a four that tell this story. Uh, we've got the underhanded corporation facing off with a militarily aggressive culture of humans whose rigid socialist ideology has caused them to separate from Earth's society. Right. Now, there you okay. go. And you and have it, you have. We're going to dump some aliens on them and fuck those guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it ends in the fourth installment with an epic battle with alien warriors mass produced by the expatriated earthlings. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it, that, that is the thing. I, you know, the the one of the other interesting ideas that this brings up is it puts out there for the first time that the alien that you get is based somewhat on its core genetic material that we have only seen bipedal aliens because we have only seen up until now aliens that pop out of human beings. And now when it comes out of an ox, it's basically quadrupedal. I mean, it'll stand up every once in a while like a bear, but it's mostly a quadrupedal animal. Uh, it's smaller and it's different. And uh, I laughed a little bit when they even ref- uh, refer to it in Act 3 as a mutant. Yes. It's almost like they know that it's the, you know it's it's not your run of the mill xenomorph that we've been running into for a while, and that idea was so powerful that it established an entire toy line of aliens that were modeled off of different animals. So you had a tiger alien and a rhino alien and a gorilla alien, and I used to collect those along with the predator action figures back when I was super nerd. Back when I would do stuff like get mad at an alien movie that I didn't like and uh, then go out and collect its toys anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the toys. The toys were – I mean the, the video game was cool. 
the toys were awesome. You know, it's like everything about Alien 3 is great except the movie itself. <laughs> it's like, it's like, <laughs> but I will say that's the first time the Alien – the Alien's birth is cool. I like that they intercut it with the um, the laying to rest of Hicks and Newt. You know, uh, we have death and we have birth and we have Charles Dutton's, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, speech and voiceover. I thought that was a nice piece of filmmaking. It works. But then when the alien finally actually comes out and then it scampers away like a puppy. (laughs) Evidence one that this movie has no idea what made the first two movies so awesome because the aliens until this movie were really sinister, mysterious things. And when I saw that fucking CGI piece of shit scamper like a dachshund. It even makes a sound. Yes, it does. It makes like a little squeak. It's like compare that to the fucking snake monster that comes out of John Hurt in the first one. And it's like, did you guys – did you guys like the first two movies? (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean we don't know exactly – obviously David Fincher is a director whose work is generally – Excellent. And you have to wonder, you know, unfettered by whatever manipulation or interference or bad ideas, you know, given more time, uh, you know, whatever ruined this film, if you could eliminate those factors, what would his version have been? I still I'm not convinced that he ever really gave a shit about this. I think that uh, I, his situation is very similar to uh, Del Toro's and Mimic, in which it was because he was a, a younger director and everyone was up his ass about every choice that he made, and it was a rushed production and kind of half-assed, and you can you can see it in the final product, but also in you know his reluctance to talk about. And in interviews, like you know, you can find like a couple of like really early interviews, and after that, he's just like, forget, let's not talk about. But I mean, obviously, you know, it didn't ruin his career. It didn't send him to director jail. Uh, Well, it made money overseas. It didn't do great here, but yeah, it warranted a fourth film, and uh, you know, and and he went on to uh, yeah, I've heard he's done pretty okay. He's done pretty okay for himself. It's it's troublesome, but it's not a complete wreck. Yeah, so we could do a whole other show, and maybe we will when Vic uh, comes back if all, <laughs> if all goes well. But we could do another whole show about these alternate scripts and versions, and you know, just kind of uh, scanning through some of this development hell stuff. There's a lot of interesting directions uh, that did not happen. But uh, this is the movie that we ended up with. Oh, and by the way, people involved in those various versions that are worthy of, of discussion. So this is the film we ended up with. Any any final thoughts about that, Mike? Anything else to say about Alien 3? I think that it is not a bad movie if you watch it by divorcing yourself of the films that came before it. If you just sit down and go, OK, I'm going to watch a sci-fi movie. Then, then I think with that clean mental slate, you can go, you know, do I enjoy this or not? And even on that level, it's still a little herky-jerky. It's still a little problematic. It's still a little um, repetitious. It's dull. It hates happiness in a lot of ways. But it's not terrible. It has some cool ideas. Uh, it makes some tough choices. It gives us some things that we don't often see in a studio summer release, you know, uh, and for that, it's kind of interesting and courageous. 
you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I give it a five, you know, even if it wasn't, if you just called it like, you know, evil space prison mm-hmm. and it was its own standalone thing, I would call it a five. It's yeah. okay. I, I think that I've downgraded it a little bit with this watch. I, I, I think I would have agreed with you more, um, last time around, but when I saw it last night, I, it, you know, it's not that most scenes with characters on the screen talking to each other aren't atrocious, but I, I felt that that was the, what the filmmakers were most interested in and had the most handle on and really almost anything that should be suspenseful or horrific or exciting just doesn't do much for me. It's a murky, poorly staged action thriller. Any of those elements I, I think are actually below average. And it's, it's really shocking when you think about, you know, the pedigree of the people involved and the budget and all of those things. So yeah, there, there, there are beats that don't even cut well that no, not cut that well together. I mean, there, there's, there's a scene where for the first time the prisoners are attacked by the alien and it's like three guys and the alien pounces on one dude and the other two guys go running and apparently they run in a circle because like three shots later, they come back to the dead body of their guy. And it's like, yeah, yeah, how, that made what? no sense at all. None. I, I was like, how did that happen? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah the, just the basic cinematic geography is, is terrible there. Don't, uh, wouldn't they run sprinting directly in the other direction? Why do they run in a circle? And I, I, I could just imagine the editor sitting there in front of, you know, the, <laughs> these are the shots that we have been given. Ladies and gentlemen, and I'll I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) There's some okay music in it, I'll say. Like, there's a few cues that I I've come to think of as being pretty representative of the series. And I I would also say uh, the cinematography is solid. I, 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 you know, the the murky yellowish grayish ness of the entire thing kind of lends itself to the dour nature of the film as a whole. But at the same time, that was kind of the, well, I mean, did it remind you of seven at all by any chance? Well, seven is very rainy and blue and that was Darius Kanji. And it's interesting that Darius shows up in resurrection as DP. That's right. Uh, You know, there, there's a definite six degrees of separation uh, within this. And, you know, even Walter Hill has his connections with Cameron and, you know, it's it's still, you know, even even though it's a newer crew, it's still like one step away from the core family of, you know, the genre filmmakers of the 80s. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it looks, you know, it's it's shot well. I guess. Know. I, I don't even uh, agree with that. I mean, I, I think I, it has some OK visuals, but I don't it's know. Murky, but but I it, it is. I, I will say that uh, Alien 3 and, and this is my true closing thought. It, it is worth a watch if you haven't seen it. You know, just going with an open mind and la la. But it is also very much indicative of this portion of our filmmaking history. Because, John, as you may recall, there was a section of time in which we were getting these sequels to the film, the 80s films that we loved so much. And suddenly they all just sucked. <laughs> and. And I'm talking about uh, RoboCop 2, uh, Alien 3, Predator 2. You know, uh, all these films have, like, they'll have cool ideas or they'll do something kind of interesting. But they're shoddier workmanship, 
crasser, you know, lower budgets, crasser filmmaking, you know, la, 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 la. And, you know, we could even continue that into, like, say, uh, you know, a you know, second Crow movie. You know, if we're going to talk about, like, a dour film that, you know, worked the first time, doesn't the second time. You know, uh, I, I think it took the the 90s a while to figure uh, a while to figure out what was good about it. That's and an I interesting th- point, because I, I was going to mention this and I'm glad you brought up The Crow, because I, I actually think that the one thing I know I like about this movie is that it doesn't try to be a music video. And that was endemic stylistically of films of this period. And I think the crow does not age well. I just tried to watch it and I felt like it was uh, indulging in a lot of that, that aesthetic that has defined uh, the nineties. I keep thinking of like hardware or that sci-fi movie that I liked when, at the time when I was a kid mm-hmm. and it's just unwatchable now as a really extreme example. And this movie really doesn't like, look at us, we're being cool and showy and stylish. It never indulges in that. Well, I have to wonder if uh, Fincher overcorrected himself because yeah. I mean, obviously, obviously, he came out of music video at the time, and uh, yeah, he was working with you know uh, the propaganda crew, um, you know Spike Jones and Romanek and all these guys, and you know, so you know, really, really, really talented directors with very strong, very personal styles, but also very slick '90s music video-ish kind of stuff, and I have to wonder if, on some level. Uh, Fincher went in this movie going, uh, you know, I'm not going to fall prey to that. I'm not going to be that guy, you know, and if he overcorrected himself. So it's like, you know, to get as far away from MTV as possible, he just stomped all the fun out of the movie. And it's interesting because Fight Club is kind of a film where he really just unloads that whole bag of tricks and with some new technology. But like Fight Club is the music video director uh, wet dream. And he kind of saved that. He, he, that's like 1999. That's his uh, third film at least. And up until then, yeah, he went kind of minimalist with his features. In some yeah, so ways. I, mean, I, I, I think that, uh, alien three, if there is a true service to us as a culture, uh, is the film that took a bullet to uh, it's it's the one that fell on the fell on its sword it jumped on the grenade it's the one that allowed fincher to you know make 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 some mistakes and learn so you know it's by standing on the shoulders of alien 3 that he was able to come around to uh giving us seven fight club you know la 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 yeah absolutely absolutely so that's that uh i guess we should make a little bit of an announcement here uh, we don't think we're going to finish up all of the Aliens vs. Predator movies. <laughs> um, we will be back, however. Uh, I think we'll, we're discussing what to do with our very next one. We might, because Vic wasn't able to make it to this show, we might still tie a bow on this season with uh, something Aliens and Predator related, whether it's Resurrection or you know something along those lines. I'd like to do Resurrection. I think Resurrection would be fun. I, I agree. I mean, I think that that really that closes the loop on on Ripley, and that's that's kind of important to do. Um, but we are thinking actively about um, what's next for our next season, which will be in 2017. Uh, Mike, how much of that do you want to hint at now? Uh, I think we're going to go toward Italian horror. 
I think we're going to go toward uh, or European or, or I should say, uh, you know, we've been throwing around some titles. Um, you know, can we do the three mothers trilogy uh, tombs of the blind dead? It's another one. Uh, you know, we kind of want, you know, it's like the, the thing that we've been wrestling with, uh, you know, first season we had, you know, the Friday the 13th films, which are, uh, wonderful, but also very frequently wonderfully bad. They're just a lot more fun to talk about. Whereas like, the Alien and Predator movies are, you know, these kind of slick studio-y, they're more often than not, they're wonderful films. And even when they're not, like, they're not laughably bad, they're just kind of like, eh, you know, like the Alien 3. So it's like, it, it feels like we want to go back to something where it's grungier horror along the lines of the classic 70s and 80s European stuff. And just the, the weird eccentricities and curiosities that arise in these yeah. wonderfully misshapen films like many yeah. of the Friday the 13th films were. Yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't until we did uh, It's Always Friday that I re- that I picked up on the bear motif in the Friday the 13th movies. And I, I, would, I would venture to say that 99.99% of people are unaware, were unaware themselves until we mined that gold, that comedic gold. You know, that's going to be on our Wikipedia page someday. <laughs> Yeah, my headstone, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Largely credited with the invention of the bear motif. (laughs) My claim to cinematic academia fame. Like, I'm going to be chair of the film department at Columbia College. Oh, man, get your jacket with those uh, corduroy elbows ready. (laughs) Got my sweet dusting off, ready to rock. I got a pipe to smoke. Oh, shit, man. I can't wait. All right. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this one and sorry for the long delay. But, uh, you know, as the calendar shifts into 2017, I think we're going to be back more regularly. I do a football podcast. I don't know if anybody's aware of it, but it's the X's and Y's podcast, your his and hers guide to fantasy football. And I also have a 40 hour a week job. So, you know, multiple podcasts in one uh, at, at a time is tough for me right now. But Uh, We love doing this. Uh, We're glad that you enjoy it, too. And until next time, uh, keep watching franchise films. Yes. Rise music. (laughs) Adios. Adios.